0: Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on Community and Indigenous Radio. I'm Emma Watsky coming to you from Radio Adelaide in Tandanya on the lands of Ghanamina. Our team pays our deepest respect to elders past and present. We extend this respect to all First Nations listeners and to the rightful custodians of the lands you are listening in from. And today on the show...
1: What might work for one, one child or one family or carer may not work for others, so it might be a bit about trial and error and seeing, seeing what works for your
0: situation. For children with disability, returning to school can be exciting for some, but daunting for others. How can parents and carers offer support in the transition back to the classroom? Also... A new film about AI is giving South Australians new experiences. How is growing technology reshaping the local arts scene? And later in the show... As the whole
2: issue of corporate social responsibility has come to the fore, there is an issue of is the money dirty? Is it being washed? Is being in receipt of capital or funds from an organisation, is this ethically questionable?
0: Major Australian community events are turning their back on corporate sponsorship. What could this mean for the changing landscape of sport and arts partnerships? We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. We're on air across Australia, thanks to the Community Radio Network and the support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up... Yesterday, The Wire published an interview with senior court psychologist Andrea Bates, exposing the treatment of youth at the Cairns Watch House. Now in Western Australia, CCTV footage was released where an officer of Controversial Unit 18 at the Casarina Prison need a 16-year-old boy. The prison system across the country is broken, according to WA Green's Upper House MP Brad Pettit. National Radio News Director Frank Bonacosso asked Mr Pettit his thoughts about the CCTV footage.
3: Look, I have to agree that behaviour was crucial to the violence and frankly is deeply unacceptable. There is no world in which a kid in handcuffs uh, you know, should be assaulted by a prison guard. And look, I think we need to call that behaviour out and frankly this sadly highlights a prison system that's broken on many levels, and I think it highlights not just the poor behaviour of an individual officer, but actually a fundamental cultural problem within corrective services and how that has been run. A system under great stress, one, one that's frankly getting worse and not better, and one that needs drastic reform.
4: Can you explain what you mean by a
3: fundamental cultural problem? We have seen over the last few years the poor treatment of kids in our prisons, not only the very existence of Unit 18, where they get put in the adult prison, but this a cultural problem where it's become normal to lock kids down for more than 20 hours a day. A culture in which it's normal for kids to be kept away from education, for really just to be where prison is used not for rehabilitation, used for further punishment. In fact, quite dehumanising treatment on a regular basis. So it should be no surprise that when we see it go in a even further more unacceptable direction where we see prison officers assaulting juveniles. Sadly, it just highlights a system that's deeply broken um, and needs some fundamental reforms.
4: Now the Prison Officers Union is saying that training is really a key issue here. The Secretary of the uh, Prison Officers Union of WA has told me that in five or six years in full knowledge of the fundamental problems facing the prison system, nothing's been done to address the shortage of prison officers of which the Secretary quantifies at about 500 officers across the state. What's your take on
3: that? Yeah, look it's hard to I argue that there is undoubtedly a huge, and ongoing staffing shortage, and there's been some belated moves recently to try to reverse that. Not hugely successful, frankly, because who would want to go into a system where that culture exists, where there is so much that needs to to be fixed? And but so there needs to be a huge reform of that, starting with 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 the leadership. We've seen a change of the, of the director general. Uh, In the process of happening but all the way down I think we've had senior leadership really take a juvenile justice system frankly in the wrong direction.
4: What likelihood of that happening when the prison officers union as the second plank of defence says that not enough training has gone into officers uh, and their need to respond to critical incidents within jails but particularly unit 18?
3: Look there does need to be more training but actually that training should be about how you deal with Young people in an appropriate way that doesn't actually lead to escalation situations doesn't lead to what we've seen again and again uh, more and more lockdowns. Look, I, I agree in part that th- this is a failure of proper training. Uh, we've seen, we especially, see adult prison guards brought, brought across into Unit 18 on a regular basis to deal with situations with, with almost no training around how to deal with young people. I know there's a line that there's been appropriate training, but the warning there is that when asked around will you release what that training looks like um, the government has declined to do so
4: successive labor governments have had carriage of corrective services for the better part of a decade and beyond i mean their signature is all over the problems that confront the corrective services regime in wa the current consensus is uh, well, at least coming from the prison officers union that they're sitting on their hands nothing is being done is that how you're seeing the situation politically
3: yeah, look, certainly not enough has been done. There has been way too much of an approach that just simply says that this problem can be solved by lockdowns, by actually going harder and taking a really punishment kind of driven approach with young people. All of the evidence, this is the great frustration, is that all of the evidence shows that that doesn't work.
0: WA Greens Upper House MP Brad Pettit speaking with National Radio News Frank Bonacosso. Two major public events in Australian capitals were underway at the weekend. Adelaide hosted professional riders from around the world in its annual Tour Down Under bike race, while over the border, Perth's annual Fringe World got underway. But how do both events reveal two sides of a changing landscape for corporate sponsorship in Australia's sport and arts scene? Matthew Ward-Ajus reports.
5: The popular Fringe World Festival got underway in Perth at the weekend for another year, but it marked the first time that it was held without the support of Australia's largest oil and gas extractor, Woodside. At the same time, over in Adelaide, the international tour down under bike race was wrapping up. That event is sponsored by another oil and gas company, Santos, which has been confronted with protests from anti-fossil fuel groups outside its offices at both this year's event and in previous editions of The Race.
2: For quite a few years it wasn't much of an issue in that, I mean, we're talking across the whole field of culture, from sport through to theatre and uh, you know film festivals and that kind of thing. People largely took the money from where they could get it, and they didn't ask very many questions.
5: That's Emeritus Professor David Rowe, a socio-cultural researcher and commentator at Western Sydney University.
2: As the whole issue of corporate social responsibility has come to the fore, there is a, an issue of, is the money dirty? Is it being washed? Is it being in receipt of capital or funds from an organisation, is this ethically questionable? You know, we can't have mission statements on, you know, the environment or racism or uh, state oppression or whatever it might be. We can't take that public stance and then be accused of hypocrisy, you know, essentially taking their shilling.
5: That view is echoed by Dr Amanda Spry, a lecturer and researcher in brands and marketing at RMIT in Melbourne.
6: In the past, having a big brand sponsor your event or your club or you you as a person would have been a positive just purely because of the size, the power, the force of these brands and perhaps not as much attention would have been paid to what industries they were in. But now we are looking more closely at what these companies do, what they represent and really thinking about. You know, do we want to bring those associations over to those brands? Are we complicit in some of their actions by becoming a partner with them?
5: Tobacco advertising has been banned on TV and radio since 1976 and mostly everywhere else since the mid-90s. Like tobacco, gambling and alcohol are legal for people over 18, have well-established health and societal risks, but are bound by much less restrictive advertising regulations. Along with fossil fuel companies, conversations around their ability to advertise have continued for years, with civil society groups like the Alcohol and Drug Foundation pushing government to ban alcohol advertising during sport, televised in children's viewing hours, as well as ads appearing on public property, sporting grounds, billboards, and public transport. At the same time, the Alliance for Gambling Reform draws support from councils, faith groups and social service councils in calling for bans on all forms of gaming promotions. Most of the AFL's 18 clubs refuse betting sponsorships. But it's fossil fuel companies that have been in the spotlight most recently. Amid opposition from athletes, in the last 16 months, Gina Reinhardt's Hancock Prospecting withdrew a major sponsorship deal with Netball Australia and Alinta Energy ended its long association with Cricket Australia. On the flip side, arts sector events like Fringe World in Perth and the Darwin Festival ended long-standing partnerships with both Woodside and Santos. But the trend isn't all one way. Last year, the Fremantle AFL Club renewed its partnership with Woodside, despite opposition from environmental groups, a high-profile member petition and even calls from Senator for the ACT, David Pocock.
6: In a mining-heavy state, uh, it can be
1: quite a controversial topic to talk about and to start highlighting the planet harm
6: that some of these fossil fuel companies are causing. It doesn't sit well with people because for the WA economy as a whole, it creates a lot of
5: income. Dr Ashley Morgan is a senior lecturer in Edith Cowan University's School of Business and Law. Last year... She was commissioned by the Climate Council to help develop a voluntary code where cultural, sports and arts groups could take a stand against fossil fuel sponsorships. While brands sponsored by contentious companies can run the risk of reputational damage, she says the risk goes both ways. Well,
1: it's not just that there's a risk going one way in a sponsorship relationship. That's got to be considered. And if sponsorship is no longer providing that positive benefit for fossil fuel companies, they'd have to be reevaluating that. As soon as it starts to become negative publicity, it's doing the exact opposite of what their intention was of that sponsorship, which was to generate that positive brand reputation for their social license.
5: Just as the health risks associated with tobacco use resulted in advertising bans 30 years ago, experts are anticipating that shifting community attitudes will continue testing the relationships between sports, the arts, and where their sponsorship dollar comes from. Amanda Spry.
6: As time goes on, I think we will see that companies who are thought to be you know, problematic and perhaps perpetuating societal problems will really face that same trajectory as those tobacco companies where simply events and people and clubs won't want to be aligned with them. They won't seek their sponsorships. They will establish models and pathways for seeking funding elsewhere. And I think that will really change the landscape for sponsorship
0: from gambling, alcohol and fossil fuel companies. Dr Amanda Spry ending that report from Matthew Ward-Ajus. Most children will be back to school from next week after a long summer break. But for children with disabilities, the process could be a challenge if there's not a pre-established routine. Parents and education providers are critical to this success. The Wire's Eduardo Jordan asked CEO of Live Big, Juliet Middleton, how going back to school can be for children with disabilities.
1: It can generate a lot of A lot of emotions, everything ranging from anxiety, but uh, it can also uh, generate a lot of excitement and that can make managing behaviours sometimes challenging, especially if children are starting at a new school or a a new learning provider. Um, So there's some ways that parents and carers can help navigate that to make it easier for their children um, as well as themselves.
7: I, I understand that family and parents are very, very important during this process of coming back to school and coming back to our routine, et cetera. How can they support children to make this step less challenging?
1: Yeah, look, there's so many things. And you know, when I'm asked this question, it's you know, what, what might work for one, one child or, or one family or carer may not work for others. So it might be a bit about trial and error and seeing seeing what works for your situation. But some things that Livbeck recommends is, Lots of talking and acknowledging. It's a bit like, you know, we go back to a new job or even go back to work after a holiday. You know, talking about that and saying, look, it's okay to be, to feel a little bit scared or worried about it and discuss those emotions to, to normalize it. Um, the other thing that I recommend for not just going back to school, but for parents and children, you know, any time of the year is that routine. Creating a sense of routine it doesn't mean that you need to sort of follow everything by the minute or by the hour, but get back into the routine of meals and having meals around the same time as you would during the, the school year, packing lunch boxes, getting the school bag out, I mean, mm-hmm. little things like, hey, you know, have a fashion parade of, of what are you going to wear to school and just start making it that that return to school and learning normal
7: and I'm also assuming as well that there needs to be, like, small steps rather than a completely radical change and say, okay, from now on, we're just going to do this, 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 this very the street, uh, right?
1: And uh, that's a really, really good point. So, you know, start now and if you haven't started and school is imminent you know, tomorrow, then don't, don't introduce all of these things, just do one or two of them. Otherwise, you know, we will be, everybody will get overwhelmed
7: now, a very important tip, like Big is suggesting for us move back to school or back to learning is Ooh. open communication. How can this be achieved?
1: Okay, that's a um, really great question. And I think uh, I'll just take a moment to emphasize open communication, not just with the other uh, child, but, but with their educators also is, is super important and to continue that during the year. And look, um, I'm a parent as well to the children and, you know, at times uh, this works. Better with, with some providers than others, and sometimes you got to try a little bit harder to have that communication, starting from the beginning of the year and saying, "Look, these these are my expectations with the learning provider, as well as with the child." So you know, we are going to talk about 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 school. We are going to talk about how things are going. You don't want to talk about it. That's okay. But you know, maybe you want to want to think about that because it's really, really, is really helpful to tell me about how you're feeling. So. You know, both open communication with the children, but also um, with, with the teachers, with the
7: school. And now how can the school or the education provider be a support for children with a disability during this process? How can they do to make children more comfortable with the process?
1: Yeah, there's so many things that, um, that they can do. And to their credit, I think you haven't found it, that provider yet that isn't, isn't aware of how important it is to make children feel comfortable in the learning space. And um, it's a very practical things like familiarizing them with the environment. You know, um, this is like, again, when we go to a, a new place or a new job, you know, where are the toilets? Where do I get water from? Where do I put my bag? All those things, which, you know, when you're in a space all the time, you are familiar with But for uh, people going, you know, new into the space or returning after a, a long break. Um, we need to you know, reintroduce that and reorientate um, them to the environment.
0: CEO of Live Big Juliet Middleton, speaking with The Wire's Eduardo Jordan. South Australians will now be able to experience new arts at Isla, formerly known as Light ADL. A new film about AI called Anomalous is debuting at Isla, giving new experiences to visitors. With AI and technology rapidly growing, what could be the impact in the local art scene? The Wire spoke with CEO of Isla, Nick Mercer, about the power of technology in art.
8: I think since our inception, we've always been developing our spaces we logistically have been renovating one of our six spaces at a time. And over the last three years, we've really been working hard on using immersive technology to essentially get to that point where you can suspend a disbelief of the worlds that you're in. So it's been a progressive change for us.
0: How are you hoping that technology and immersive experiences can both push the boundaries of art and audience experience in new ways with this, for want of a better term, rebrand?
8: We're seeing immersive technologies throughout the world growing at an exponential rate. In 2019, there was a survey that put out that recognised there were 774 new immersive products that were brought online in the immersive uh, technology and immersive world space. So, It's growing uh, at a rapid rate. I think our unique point is that we're at that intersection between immersive technology and art, but art is at the forefront of everything that we do. So there's a lot of immersive experiences that exist at the moment that kind of put an art banner on themselves. We would argue the true definition of art is something that catches the memory and moves the soul.
0: How do you want to see artists, particularly local artists, become even more empowered by technology as as time moves on?
8: The thing that we're really mindful of is artists need access to innovative spaces. We recently launched a new experience called Anomalous, which is an an art film experience based uh, with AI as the plot. There were two key parts to that. One was giving the artists a commission that they could spend some time and, and work on developing their artwork. But the second was giving them access to the space. This is technology that is really, really expensive and really difficult to, to maintain and operate. And we think our role in this environment is to give access to those spaces.
0: Richard Coborn is an Adelaide director, motion designer and co-creator of Anomalous. He describes the work as a mixture of film, art and experience. It's
9: designed specifically for the space at Isla and it's a real attempt to kind of give an audience a unique experience, so there's moments of art where you kind of feel like you're inside test chambers and kind of experiencing visual stimulation and then there's moments of narrative story there's moments of mockumentary and and media takeover kind of stuff
0: has the process of creation been somewhat different to say compared to more traditional filmmaking for you
9: in a way it has um mainly because of the scale of the project in myself and justin my co-creator we've got a lot of experience at working at Uh, high ends of um, all levels of production so we were able to do a lot but because it was just the two of us um, doing things like shoots it was very much like let's uh, start the process and it will evolve so rather than heavily scripted and, um, and us really just making the idea based off documentation we actually just started making it and then when it evolved in a new direction we did new things and different things so in that sense it was um quite different to a really mapped out production
0: can you share a little more about how anomalous pushes the dimensions of contemporary film and effectively the value of audience
9: what we really wanted to do was create something unique for an audience member it is a the space is is large but in it can also feel quite intimate because we can surra- almost surround your vision and so what that allows us to do is create a real emotional connection to an audience i guess so what we did is we fully leaned into that like let's make people uncomfortable let's let's make them feel within something let's make let's make it hit you in the chest and and you know can we get goosebump moments for someone just sitting in this room uh, and and you know for us that's a a driving factor to well come and see this
0: in what ways are you perhaps hoping to challenge some of the fears um or maybe misconceptions surrounding ai and technology
9: so i guess ai was a bit of a theme for the for the show obviously and, and in in some ways we wanted it to be a satire because you know a lot of the stuff we've done before this humor is kind of an element but it's not kind of we're not telling jokes here we like that sort of it's a mockumentary or it's that sort of thing so the interesting thing for us is uh, people come out of our show talking a lot about ai but one of the things i wanted people to examine is the underlying cause behind ai i mean if you look at ai it's basically automation on, on a grand scale potentially and That's what happened in the industrial revolution and things like that. But I can see in many cases where it's it's financial reasons that AI is being implemented. You know, we can save money if this is all automated. Our show looks at that and I think that's one of the issues around AI that probably needs to be discussed.
0: Richard Coborn, Adelaide Director and Motion Designer, speaking with The Wire. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening. The Wire is a co-production between 2SER in Gadigal, Sydney, 3 Z in Nam Melbourne, 4 Z and Radio 4EB in Mianjin, Brisbane, and Radio Adelaide with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. Remember, you can check out our stories at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and X. I'm Emma Watsky, coming to you from Radio Adelaide in... Tandanya Adelaide. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire.